I live in North Carolina right now, and we have counties on the coast that the peak of the rut is the first week of October. Mm-hmm. Um, all and then as you go west, it gets later and later, all the way to week peak rut dates. And that's just one state. Of course, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, all those states have very long ruts if you're willing to move throughout the state. So it's a, it's a unique opportunity. Deer are not by virtue territorial and that they don't have a territory. You know, let's say mountain lions, for instance, they have territories. They have, a male has a marked territory. Deer are not that way. Now, what they're communicating with that rub, and the same with scrapes, might be their dominance in the hierarchy. You know, kind of like chickens, the pecking order, right? If there's a buck and, and he's very dominant in the hierarchy, he will be out marking. Other deer who come and smell it might know that that buck has been in that area and, and that might affect their behavior in some way. You'll see a little bit of a, of a uptick in, in scraping behavior again in the post rut. You know, as bucks are out looking again for those last few does that might be coming into heat. But we see that same kind of behavior with scrapes where they ramp up real heavily and then they just kind of shut off when the rut happens. Mm-hmm. Bucks have one thing on their mind when does are coming into estrus and it's not it's not necessarily rubbing and scraping. They might do that when the opportunity presents itself, but that's not their mission at that point. What I relate a lot of this to, and this is the overarching thing that we see in deer, is that deer very quickly relate to what humans are doing. And when they notice a pattern in us, they pattern us, right? They're scouting us as much as we think we're scouting them. You can figure out what most hunters are doing and then figure out how to kind of work that to your advantage. You know, that then you can start to figure out what the deer are doing pattern-wise and how they're shifting the hunting pressure. And it's not always going deep. Hey guys, I want to start off by thanking you for keeping me on the air since 2004. I'm trying to keep everything fresh and keep bringing you content that is both enjoyable and informational. So if you can help me out by hitting me up on Instagram or Facebook and giving me some suggestions for guests, topics, and questions, I really appreciate it. Also, you've heard me say this, but please, 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 please take a few moments to give me a review on iTunes. It's so important to keeping me on the air. So if you want this podcast to stick around, please get on there. Drop me a line. Lastly, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Been a title sponsor of the show for a long time. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20% on everything they offer. All right, let's get into this next episode. Hi, welcome to Days in the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Today, we're going to talk deer behavior. And I think it's important to understand, even if it, you know, the deer we might be talking about specifically or the, the, the guests' experiences with deer might be different than the area that you're from. It's important to kind of get a good rounded feel for what deer do and be able to apply that to your hunting wherever your locale is. So uh, we're going to be talking to Mariah Bogus today, and Mariah is uh, a deer biologist, if I remember correctly. How's it going? Going pretty good. Happy to be here, John. Yeah, awesome, man. Yeah, I wanted to get you on earlier, kind of like before October and before guys started kind of doing some of the hunting here, but uh, mm. hey. The life gets in the way a little bit, so. <laughs> Best place than ever. Yeah, there's a lot of hunting to be done, too. Yeah. Uh, depending on what you're doing, of course. 
Yeah, of course. Well, so, you know, here in Arizona, uh, it's where I live. We really just get started deer hunting. Well, I mean, all the rifle hunts have been going on all mm-hmm. through October, November, but we have our archery deer season is during the rut and that starts, you know, mid, mid December and goes to the end of January, you know, and I've hunted places like Alabama and Florida and Texas, uh, you know, pretty much all that. The Gulf coast States are, you know, late. Some of them even go into March. Right. Yeah. 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 I know I've hunted the Arizona thing years ago and that was a lot of fun and it is there are kind of a lot of parallels to the south southeastern u.s there i don't know how much you want to talk specific to the southeast today with whitetails but you know the rut is so varied down here i live in north carolina right now and, and we have counties on the coast that the peak of the rut is the first week of october mm-hmm. um all and then as you go west it gets later and later all the way to week peak rut dates and that's just one state of course Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, all those states have very long ruts if you're willing to move throughout the state. So it's a, it's a unique opportunity. Yeah, I know. I And somebody was telling me at one point, um, and I've experienced this to an extent myself in Florida, you can hunt the rut if you move around from like October to March or something like that. Even uh, – earlier even uh, earlier tail end of august yeah. yeah see i've seen that was another thing yeah so i heard somebody else say that or august too that's crazy yeah i, I wouldn't want to be out there i, I it's bad I've enough where i'm at with the bugs <laughs> i've done it it's not fun i mean hell yeah. shit last time i was in uh in florida deer hunting was what two years ago and it was early october dude i thought i thought the mosquito was going to freaking carry me away Mm-hmm. It was so it was hot. It was so bad. I mean, I got a deer. Yeah. I, I can't complain. I got a deer and a hog. But man, it yeah. was brutal. I, I literally, know, my wife counted like two hundred mosquito bites on my back. They were biting me through my shirt. So I, yeah. I, I hate that stuff so much. And and you know, like I think that's one thing that's so different in the east. You know, I hunt the Midwest some, and 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 the mountains and the coast. I live on the coast. I. The place that I hunt is 20 miles from the beach. Mm. And so our bow season starts in September, and obviously we've got real bad bugs then. But I was out this past weekend, and we had one of our coldest days yet. It was high as around 50, and there were still mosquitoes out. I've had that happen in Mississippi in January. In these southern, really warm climates, there's really no getting away from them. you got to have a thermocell. If if it's above freezing, (laughs) it's crazy. They are very aggressive. When I'm in Indiana hunting, I mean, it can be a 50, 60 degree day. If it's October, they're gone, you know? Yeah. I think by us here, the reason we don't see, I mean, we get plenty of mosquitoes in the summertime now. We didn't used to, which is crazy. Um, Mm. But I think it's just brought about by more people having more standing water and so on and so forth. But that's it in a nutshell. Like come late October, even though it's still warm out the mosquito population goes way, way, way the hell down. Like right now you'd be hard pressed to find one. I think I saw one yesterday. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that was in my house, but you, you can leave the doors open and stuff and bugs aren't flying and well, bugs in general, just no flies, no nothing. And I think a lot of that has to do is right now it's kind of like our dry. <laughs> we, we have a lot of dry season, but we have, it's a dry part of the year and it's colder. You know, the mornings are forties and fifties. Yeah. 
you know, even though it still gets shit yesterday, I think it was 75 degrees and it gets warm for the day for sure. But yeah, that has a lot right. to do with it for sure. Anyway, right. before we get too far down the road, let's, let's hear a little bit about yourself and what you do. And then uh, we'll kind of jump into it a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm a deer biologist specifically. I'm a wildlife, you know, really I'm a wildlife biologist. I'd like to think of myself as somewhat of a forest ecologist. At least that's what really drives me a lot of the time. But um, I studied wildlife management in undergrad, went on to do my master's on deer and oak trees and and oak masting. That's kind of where that forest ecology standpoint comes in. And, Mm -hmm. And really where forest management and deer management meet Um, I did my my master's down at Mississippi State at the deer lab down there and following my master's I moved to Indiana and I was the state deer biologist for DNR up there for about a year and then I moved back to North Carolina which is actually where I'm originally from and the state deer biologist role there and I was I was in in that job for about two years and I, I recently in the last couple of months left that job and I'm now working for a, a private wildlife primarily deer management company out of Mississippi doing just private land stuff on big tracks for private landowners and really working to optimize their management so that they can they can go from 90% to 100% potential on their property so mm. it's really now deer management year round for me and and that really that's what I love to do I'm I'm a big deer hunter that's what got me into it and I I love learning about deer and I love learning about forest management, specifically oak management and, and oak ecology. And where deer and oak ecology meet, that's where I really geek out. <laughs> so uh, that might come up later, you know, in our conversation and, and hunting strategy, because those two cross over very well in a lot of ways. Oak biology is way overly sim- oversimplified, and I think uh, you know a little bit more robust understanding about oak ecology can can open up some more possibilities for hunters in early season as well as late season Mm -hmm. absolutely no i couldn't agree more i actually have a little bit of background in all this myself um i I used to do hunting land consulting i have a master's in rangeland management and ecology so Mm. i know enough to be dangerous i I got a deer deer stewardship uh from clemson university and uh you know, so I, I I went down a little bit of that road that you're fully down, and uh, and I really it, it it's very interesting stuff to me, and I know that my knowledge of deer behavior and just animal behavior in general has certainly made me a better hunter. So that's mm-hmm. why I love having conversations like this. Um, well, I'm all about it. Let's do it. Well, let's uh, let's let's talk about home range a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if how common knowledge it is to guys, girls that are hunters that how home range changes with the season and why. If we're talking about male deer bucks, why it changes, you know, why, why do they have this type of home range in the early season? And then it gets to this and then it gets to that and, and go back yeah. and forth. So yeah, take us through that if you want to. Okay. So yeah, first off, obviously, you know, from a buck's perspective, I mean, he's got 
two jobs in life. One is staying alive and one is breeding so that he leaves a legacy behind and, and has offspring. And for 11 months out of the year, again, depending on what state you're in and what the rut looks like, 11 months out of the year, his prime goal is survival. And survival really focuses in a lot of ways around food. And when we look at home ranges in early season, throughout the summer, uh, and then again in winter, it's all focused around food. Mm-hmm. And that, in a lot of ways, drives the size of that home range. In general, early season and late season home ranges are much smaller than during the fall. You know, specifically the area where that deer's spending the bulk of its time, 9% of its time. In those seasons, it's all about feeding and staying secure. So moving from food to cover, back to food, not getting killed. That's where the deer focus is. Now, deer will still move around in those seasons, you know, and their home ranges can vary in size. But let's say a, a buck on average has a home range in the southeast around 500 acres or so. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit under a square mile. That's a fall home range. In the spring, summer, and the winter, that home range will probably shrink down considerably. A great example of why that that home range shrinks down you know during the rut bucks lose 20 percent or so of their body mass just because they're not eating very much and they're exercising heavily mm-hmm. so come december or whatever the month is after the rut in your area those bucks are shifting to high uh, highly dense you know calorically dense foods in some places that's grain from farming practices and other places that's acorns that it, it could be anything They'll find that concentration of food, and, and I've seen deer just park on it. You know, they're, they're not moving super far. They're not moving farther than they have to. They're eating food, and they're going back to, to bed, and they're going back and forth. Home ranges are, are, are quite small then. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, back to the rut, as I mentioned, about 500 acres or so is that, is that buck's home range. Now, that varies widely between individuals. What I'm saying there for 500-ish acres is an average. And uh, in deer management, it seems to always come up when we ask, you know, we ask questions about deer uh, size or behavior or whatever is the concept of a bell-shaped curve. If you imagine a bell, imagine the Liberty Bell. You know, it's tallest in the center and it has tails. If you're looking from the side, it has tails on either side where it kind of slants out and down. Imagine a graph that looks like that. Okay. The area underneath the graph is the proportion of bucks. That area in the center is, you know, what the average buck is. 90% of deer are in that center bit, but we have those little tails on either side, the left tail and the right tail. So if we talk about home range sizes, you know, if let's say 18 out of every 20 bucks has about a 500 acre home range, give or take 50 or 100 acres, you're still going to have, you know, one or two that has a home range much smaller down to 100-some acres, 200 acres on the extreme. And in the opposite way, you know, on the order of thousands of acres on the right side. And, and again, I'm talking here in the southeast. Mm-hmm. If we move out of the southeast into more open landscapes, the Midwest, the West, the Great Plains, where we have large expansive areas that have very little cover, and the cover is primarily riparians, or they can be woodlots in the Midwest, we see deer home ranges in general increase in size. So, you know, what I'm talking about here is on the southeast, kind of the small end. But regardless, deer biology or their necessities for a life is really what's driving those home range sizes. And there's 
really cool, you know, a lot of hunters out there probably have cool examples of a buck who they saw move really far. Mm-hmm. You know, that that stands out, right? If we have a property that's a mile or two apart, we get a buck on camera between the two. That always stands out. But there's really no way to ever document through hunting those bucks have really small core areas. You might have a buck that you only get on one part of your farm, but you don't know if he's just staying in that 200 acres or maybe he's using the neighbor next to you. And that's something we often don't know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with free range deer, but it's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. You'd have thing to have a collar study or about. something. Exactly. And we know it happens through collar studies, but we just don't as hunters get to see it. Um, yeah. So one other thing I did want to mention here is we're, if we're on the subject of deer home ranges mm-hmm. are shifts in home ranges. And this has been documented in a few different studies in the Southeast where bucks have geographically distinct home ranges for the fall, the summer, or the winter. And so, you know, normally it'll be like he spends summer here and then he moves off for the fall and then he comes back in winter. Sometimes, you know, it's a mixture of the two where, you know, he spends summer here and then fall and winter in a different place. But anyway, there's a movement between these home ranges and often the, the way we see this manifest itself with, with hunting or with hunters with properties or they'll have a really nice buck on camera. You know, they're, they're watching this buck all through the year, him and his buddies in the bachelor group, and then come velvet shed that deer leaves. Now velvet sheds in the, in the early fall when testosterone levels rise within the buck, which of course um, is also related to increases in, in uh, just, aggression and in, in you know breeding tendencies and and seeking and rubbing and scraping all the things that lead to the to the rut and that's when we often see those home range shift it shifts in bucks if we're going to in in, in, in individuals so you know sometimes these home ranges are geographically separated by five ten miles often less but those kinds of shifts do happen and it's, it's really fascinating because I know I've had it happen to me where a buck is on camera and disappears or, you know, I'm the lucky one on the receiving end where a buck shows up come October and he's around for the fall mm-hmm. um, and make it for the winter. So that's something that the hunters often see. And then obviously the other one I think we're all probably aware of are excursions. Just the fancy word for those bucks making real long movements outside of their home range. Yeah. So if he has a 500 acre area where he spends most of his time, he might make one or two excursions during the rut. Or, you know, during November, if you're in the Midwest and travel five miles, four miles or something in a, in a different direction and then eventually come back. Yeah. We, I, I see that. So out here in Arizona, I didn't want to cut you off before, like out here in out West that I've noticed, man, the, the home range during the rut is gigantic, mm-hmm. like absolutely gigantic. I've seen especially in mule deer more so, but even with our coos whitetail here in Arizona, I've seen a buck four miles away from where I was seeing them, you know, earlier. And I've seen, actually we have a, a pretty good, uh, (laughs) pretty good story. We saw a buck. We, this was a mule deer buck. We saw this buck down by the border of Mexico. And then three days later, 24 miles north on the highway that buck was in that area oh that's cool yeah so they like in the the rut's really 
really, really ridiculous out here. Like if you got a buck patterned throughout the early season, there's a pretty good chance that that buck will not be there. Now, the, the flip side of that is too, like I, I have bucks every single year that show back up to breeding rounds and you won't find them there at all, all early season, all through the fall, but come, you know, early winter and during our rut, you know, basically day after Christmas, here they come, they just show up and they're there for a whole month. It's kind of weird because I've never been able to like really, I know these areas and I know that bucks are going to show up and I've hunted bucks multiple years. Matter of fact, last this year in 2023, I shot a buck that I had stalked a couple times in 2022 and it was, uh, you know, so I know these, that they have these areas, but I don't know where they go to. I wouldn't be able to find them in the early season because they come from far away. Yeah. And it's, it's just a, it's like a weird, it's a weird thing that I've never been able to put my finger on. And I, nor that I have the time to sit there and really try to uh, go through it and, and, you know, pinpoint and locate where they're at. The flip side of that is like, especially the whitetail, we find a buck, you're going to find that, if we find that buck in like August, that buck is going to occupy that area until, you know, you start, might get bumped around once the rifle season starts in, in late October. But from then, from when, whenever you find them in July or whatever, till those rifle seasons really start get going, that buck will, you'll find them on the same hillside. Like hmm. they don't go, they literally, they get up, they pee, they walk 10 yards, they shit, they go eat 10 yards away and right. then they go back in bed. It's like, they don't really move at all. It's like, it's their home range gets super tiny. So it goes from like super tiny yeah. to super huge. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. I, I would love to do a collar study out here to see what that kind of, what that kind of translates to. But yeah, that sounds most similar to, uh, you know, in Eastern white tails, the summer patterns, especially in ag country, when they have a, a bean field they're going to, mm. it can be a ridiculously small home range. Yeah, um, they don't like, have to go anywhere. Like less, yeah. less than 30 acres, <laughs> yeah. you know, that documented less than 30 acres, uh, home ranges in, in summer whitetails. So yeah, that's, that's kind of similar. Awesome. Let's talk about scrapes and rubs, maybe some things about them that can kind of help us put some meat in the freezer. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the things to know about both of them is that they are a communication mechanism for deer. So let's take a rub you know, a, a buck will make a rub and they will rub <clears throat> their antlers, obviously, to agitate the bark and, and rub it off the tree and expose the cambium layer, which is like that kind of the sappy part of the tree right underneath the bark. And then they'll rub their forehead gland on it, which excretes a scent. And that's kind of the, one of their ways of, of marking that spot and saying, hey, you know, I was here. This is who I am. You know, yada, yada, yada. Deer are not by virtue territorial and that they don't have a territory, you know, let's say mountain lions, for instance, they have territories. They have a male has a marked territory. Mm-hmm. Deer are not that way. Now what they're communicating with that rub and same with scrapes might be their, their dominance in the hierarchy 
you know, kind of like chickens, the pecking order, right? If there's a buck and, and he's very dominant in the hierarchy, he will be out marking and other deer who come and smell it might know that that buck has been in that area and, and that might affect their behavior in some way. When it comes to scrapes, and, and so rubs we see pop up as soon as velvet sheds, bucks will begin rubbing and then a lot of rubbing behavior happens before the rut, like leading up to the rut and in the pre-rut. And then you'll see a little bit in the post-rut, but, you know, a lot of it happens prior to the rut. When we talk about scrapes, scrapes happen year-round. I can't tell you how many times every single year I'll see, you know, a post on Facebook or whatever in March of someone finding a scrape and assuming that breeding is happening because of it. But it's, it's actually not the case. So scrapes are used by deer as a communication mechanism year-round, and they are worked by both males and females deer communicate outside of the rut and in scrapes are one of the the means that they used to do that now obviously scraping behavior if you spend much time obviously hunting around the rut there's there a lot more scrape behavior than that's not only the only time it happens deer will pop up the ground you know and they'll they'll pee bucks will pee across their tarsal glands again likely leaving a scent marker that way and then working that branch overhead uh, with their forehead gland, their preorbital gland, which is in the front of their eye, they're again leaving scent behind. And obviously, again, bucks and does both do that. And again, you know, it is a mechanism for deer communication. It's a hub. Uh, whether or not a buck will check a scrape and know if a hot doe came through, and you know, or I, sh- I should say, whether or not a doe purposefully pees in a scrape to indicate that she is is coming into estrus. I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. You know, that hasn't been proven. It, it's it's a hypothesis people throw around and, you know, an idea. Uh, but, but bucks definitely check those scrapes more often leading up to the rut. But what's interesting is when the rut comes, when the peak of the rut comes, when, when the most does are in heat, bucks very seldom will work those scrapes. I mean, they, you know, they go off cold uh, whenever – true chasing behavior begins and, and breeding begins. And then you'll see a little bit of a, of a uptick in, in scraping behavior again in the post rut, you know, as bucks are out looking again for those last few does that might be coming into heat. But we see that same kind of behavior with scrapes where they ramp up real heavily and then they just kind of shut off when the rut happens. Mm-hmm. Um, bucks have one thing on their mind when does are coming into estrus and it's not, it's not necessarily rubbing and scraping. They might do that when the opportunity presents itself, but that's not their mission at that point. Right. I got a little bit of theory about that. And I think it's, again, this is just, you know, me observational. I think that the reason why the activity on the scrapes goes down when the peak, you know, like the chase period or the peak of, or the peak of the actual rut itself, when they're in whatever you want to call it, lockdown or is that there's enough scent in the air, there's enough does in estrus that they don't have to rely on having to be a detective, so to speak, to go find mm-hmm. that one doe that might be. I think that, and I think that has a lot to do with it. This is I'm gonna I'm gonna inject this here, even though it's not exactly what we're talking about, but I have noticed, and I've had a lot of success that when I'm hunting in October, uh, which I do back east quite often, I matter of fact, I was there in, in, on hunting in Long Island um, this early October, that if there there's scrapes about 
and a rain hits at nighttime and it goes until, you know, if you get that perfect, literally storm, perfect storm that comes through, comes rains all night long, and then it stops sometime early in the morning. If you go hunt those scrapes, you're going to see buck activity on it. They will come to refresh those scrapes. I don't know exactly why. I'm assuming they're like, oh, crap, my my message board has been erased. I'm going to go back out there and make sure that it is fresh so that everybody knows that I'm here. That's my take on it. <laughs> but I don't know if you had anything to add to that or or you had any real um, scientific data as to if that was uh, a, an actual thing or <laughs> I just – you know, off the top of my head, I, I believe I have read in studies where there is a slight uptick following the rain event, but I can't say, you know, I can't say absolutely, yes, it, it is actually sizable and significant in any way. But I, I, I've heard that, of course, many times throughout the years as well. And, you know, and if that was the case, it might have something to do with just the, the scent viability following the rain, you know, who knows. It's so hard to tell whenever, uh, you know, any kind of research is done looking at weather and deer behavior with collared deer. Mm -hmm. There is almost never any kind of or, or any kind of consistent pattern related to weather. You know, people looked at overall movement, feeding behavior or what have you uh, around cold front, barometric pressure, all these things that people believe they see patterns with. And. If there ever is any significant effect, let's say there's a study in, in Southern Illinois, mm -hmm. they might in that study say, oh, we found the slightest effect of, you know, wind speed and at higher winds, deer seem to move more. But then you go somewhere else and I'm using this, for instance, this isn't an actual study, but right. you go somewhere else and it will be the opposite. We couldn't find anything related to wind. The same goes for temperature. And so I, I say all that to say it, it's not that there couldn't be weather events that affect deer behavior locally, but it's not a consistent pattern in the species across their range. So something like a cold front, I feel like that's a pretty universal belief among hunters that a cold front gets deer on their feet. That could happen in, in some instances and it could be, it could be uh, circumstantial, you know, in, in, in this situation it worked and in others it didn't, but across the board, there's not just, there's not an overwhelming amount of evidence across the whitetail range that when the temperature drops X number of degrees, deer are going to move more or anything like that. So I say all that, say it, it, it has been difficult with deer research to ever verify some of these patterns that, that you know, hunters seem to see in front of them. Um, right. So anyway, and you I, know, I, I think that is, has very, has very much to do with what the deer are used to as far as local weather. And I'm, I'm going to give you an example uh, um, that might uh, cooperate this, what, what you're saying. Basically, okay, so every year I hunt in South Dakota. This is a great example. Okay. It is windy there all the time. You know, if it's not mm -hmm. blowing 10 miles an hour, it's blowing 30 miles an hour. And the wind, if I was to get... 20 mile an hour, 25 mile an hour winds here, let's say in Arizona, that would, I would see a shutdown. I would see more deer bedded, less deer on their feet than I would. Now, if I go there 
it doesn't seem to phase them because obviously they got to go about their business. They're so used to dealing with 20 mile an hour winds that, mm-hmm. hey, if I don't feed now, you know, over here, okay, a 20 mile an hour wind is, you know, few and far between. So if I had to lay down for a few hours and not eat to stay out of the wind, I'm going to be okay. But if I did that in South Dakota as a deer, if I was sitting down, you know, multiple hours a day, five days a week, I'm not going to get enough nutrition. I'm not going to be able to be able to eat, you know? So I think that has a lot to do with um, what you were saying, that it's hard to get a consistent feel for what, what moves deer when it comes to weather. Now, I think rule of thumb wise, yes, if it's windy, deer are going to go bed and get out of the wind. If it's cold, you're going to see them get up and move and feed more. You know, if you got heavy rain, you're, they're probably going to bed. You know, these things are, are all true, but what degree of cold, what degree of windy, what degree of rain is going to move the needle in that area? That's where I think is the, I don't know, the crux, I guess, of, of what, of what people see, you know, like, am I making sense to you? I don't, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of going to go. It's the change in, it's the change in whatever condition that would be the trigger. Right. You know, and the the degree of that change in relationship to where those deer are at. And your example of the wind, it's not that 20 mile an hour winds are inherently bad. It's that if you go from zero to 20, that might be a a change. Just like if you went from 20 to 40, it might be a change. Right. And so, and that, you know, and that's been looked at in research again, and looking at those changes, those those shifts and weather patterns and fronts and all that. And again, there's no consistent, there's, there's never been a a consistent predictor across the board for, for deer. And I'm talking specifically whitetails here Mm -hmm. in the East, Midwest, Southeast, Northeast, you know, and, and I'll say this for, for myself, and, and that is that, you know, I'm only going to see deer if I'm out there. And I know a lot of guys who won't go if it's warm. So how would you know if they're moving or not? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. the more time you spend in the field, the more time, you know, more opportunity you're going to create. So, yeah, you, and, that's what's the saying. You can't kill them from the couch. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll say this. I'm a big believer in confidence. And if that's what it takes for you to be confident, then you know, to be out there, then absolutely you want to be confident when you go to the woods. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sometimes you just, you got to kind of follow what you believe if it, it'll make you hunt harder on the flip side. I'm also a believer. If you've got time to be in the woods, why would you ever make an excuse? Yep. You know, <laughs> exactly. I love <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's switch gears a little bit. What are some like behavioral attributes of deer that you can key in on that might help you tag out, you know, like, uh, I don't know what an example would be right now, but you know, deer do this quite often. So if you do this, you might have a better chance. I don't know. Something like along those lines. This is something I am continually picking apart and I'm learning. And that is hunting deer in really steep hills. Hmm. And, um, so last week I was hunting them up in the Appalachians uh, in North Carolina. So real, real steep terrain. And then 
where I've done a lot of this is in Southern Indiana. There's, there's, uh, in Southern Indiana, it's all forested. The County where I hunt, it's like 90% forest and it's all just straight up and down hills. Now they're not super tall. They'll be 300, 400 foot from top to bottom, Mm -hmm. but they just go up and down, up and down, up and down. And so there's a lot of topography to deal with. And this is something I'm realizing the more I hunt up there, a few things. One is that deer, deer do use ridges. I mean, they, they will use ridge tops. However, one thing that I see very consistently up there on the national and state forest that I hunt is that the hunting pressure is focused on those ridge tops. A lot of folks will see a saddle and, you know, they want to go sit in that saddle or they mm-hmm. want to sit where a bunch of ridges come together. And that's fine. And I know deer do definitely use those, but where I'm more consistently seeing sign and seeing deer moving and i've confirmed this most when it's snowy and i can see tracks and i can see deer farther through the timber they're using the bottom half of that slope a lot more than i've ever read or seen anyone talk about in hunting media or whatever so when oftentimes when we talk about ridges we're always so focused on the top what's the top doing whatever i've become much more focused in the last year the last 12 months or so in the bottom half and what that bottom half looks like. Mm-hmm. And what I find up there is that where you have really rugged terrain, there's a lot of texture to it. Actually, not, not necessarily rugged because it's not necessarily steepness. It's texture to the hills. Okay. What I mean by that, like small spurs, lots of little spurs intersecting. Low on the sides of those ridges, that's where I most consistently find deer bedding. And I can, I'm, I'm getting to the place where I can more consistently predict where they're going to travel and so what i'm what i relate a lot of this to and this is the overarching thing that we see in deer is that deer very quickly relate to what humans are doing and when they notice a pattern in us they pattern us right they're Mm -hmm. scouting us as much as we think we're scouting them and in on those pieces of national and state forest i'm talking about the logging roads are on the very tops of those hills and a lot of the access is from the ridge tops. Now, sometimes it's from the bottom, but you'll see guys walk right up to the top and then walk those, those ridge tops on those logging roads. I do the same because that's how you get around when you got to go up and down, up and down. You might big walk a big horseshoe, but instead of going up and down three times, you just go up and down once. Correct. You're walking those logging roads. And so what I believe, and I have no data to back this up, obviously, just what I've seen is that I think deer – Use those ridge tops more in the e or more in the night because I've had cameras up there. Def- deer definitely use them. I see more daylight movement lower on the side hills, where I think they can more easily skyline, smell, and detect hunters without bumping into hunters near as much. And you know that's just a great example of if you can figure out what most hunters are doing. And then figure out how to kind of work that to your advantage, you know, that then you can start to figure out what the deer are doing pattern wise and how they're shifting the hunting pressure. And it's not always going deep, you know, mm-hmm. everyone wants to walk miles and miles. Not everyone. I was going to say, <laughs> I'm going to say most people lazy. don't want to walk anywhere, but I see lazy ones, but there's still, there's so many people with electric bikes now and all, and they can, they just go and go and, and they think that, you know, they're getting away from people and, and they're getting away from the, the road hunters, people sitting close to the road. But 
simply just going deep and setting up at least here doesn't necessarily work for you. You kind of got to figure out what people are doing, what kind of forest cover they're, they're trying to hunt in. Like where I hunt on the coast, everyone wants to hunt the riparian bottoms, which are those open hardwood bottoms where you can kind of see. Because mm-hmm. as soon as you get in the uplands where it's longleaf, it's four or five foot tall brush. And you got to have a deer. If, even if you're up in a tree, you got to have a deer within about 20 yards to see it. But if you go walk through that stuff, that's where the deer are. You, you jump them all the time in there. Um, again, kind of figuring out what hunters are doing and then adjusting to how the deer, you know, are avoiding hunting pressure. Right. I think that's big. And I'm still learning that one. What about some deer body language? What are, what are some things like, you know, you're in there, you're kind of, uh, you're waiting for your shot to present itself and, you know, what are some of the things, indicators maybe that will let you know, because that's one of the things that I find that people kind of, uh, lack or not necessarily lack, but just inexperienced on being able to read the body language and like, like when to draw back when you're bow hunting or, you know, just knowing, okay, now the deer is going to make a move or Mm -hmm. pay attention to their tail more than anything. You know, a tail up is usually alert or oftentimes right before they'll, they'll fly out of there. Mm-hmm. So a tail up or puffed out, you know, they're, they're alert. They're detecting danger. The flick of the tail always, from what I've seen, indicates, you know, that, that they feel comfortable. Oftentimes if they've been staring you down and they finally, re- you know, finally give up and think everything's good, they'll flick their tail and go about their business. Mm-hmm. The, the tail, you know, is a big one. I think ears and, and head position is, is all pretty straightforward. I mean, if they're looking at you ears forward, they're more alert. Right. One thing, you know, and this crossed my mind the other day, I was taking my wife hunting for the first time. And, you know, I was telling her one of the mistakes I made so often when I first started, because I didn't know that this happened. And, uh, and, and I'm not sure if this happens out West, but in, in the East, I've seen it everywhere. I've hunted deer, especially with does an older doe. That's the smartest deer in the woods. She, I have had it happen multiple times where a doe, the lead doe, will be staring me down. As soon as she puts her head down, do not move because mm-hmm. <laughs> she is testing you. And I've, I've seen this the and, and I know it's kind of <laughs> humanizing them to say this, but I do believe that they will try to trick you into moving if they think, if they think you're there. So oftentimes what will happen is they'll stare at you, then they'll put their head down to the side so only one eye can see you and their head's down. And the temptation is you're in a bad position, right? You're sore or whatever from sitting still for the last two minutes. And you want to move. But as soon as you do, she's going to lift her head and be locked right onto you. And she'll be like, aha, I, you know, I, I got you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in that situation, I just wait until I can't see her eyes. You know, she's facing away or whatever before I do any kind of movement. And I think making it through that stage when she might have her head down and she's just studying her environment with her peripheral vision if you can make it through that then generally they'll calm down that one you know yeah they're slot and they and they know what people do if they're staring down a predator they know what a predator will generally do and that's just sit tight until they turn their head right yep yeah that's uh, that is a very common thing and i've hunted you know from maine to 
Southern California, you know, and, and back. I think that is a very common and it's not just deer. It's not just whitetail muleys or, or blacktail, like elk will do it. Antelope mm-hmm. will do it. I haven't hunted moose enough to know if they do it or not, but I would imagine they had their, they probably do it to, to some extent as well. They are definitely looking for movement and it, yeah. And forgive me if I'm, I don't remember exactly. So a deer, if you're staying perfectly still, like a deer really can't see you. That's why like people all the time will deer and elk will walk right up to them. They don't even know if they're just moving, if, but a second there's any kind of movement, they catch it. It's just because the way their eyes are. That's like all prey animals, right? No, that that's with turkeys. Okay. That's, what I, that's what I've always I've always read and heard with turkeys, but deer can absolutely pick something out of their environment, even if it's not moving. Mm, okay. uh, a, gr- a great example: a trail camera or a new stand setup. Mm, okay. If you watch a deer from a distance, they as soon as they step out in the field or clearing, they'll see that and they'll walk onto and walk over there or freak out. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I don't know if that was necessarily meaning that they didn't know that something was different in the environment, but whether or not you were a threat, but I guess, yes, I get you. I get what you're saying, but yeah, hundred percent. Okay. I got it. I got where, I got where, where that, that kind of gets the lines kind of get blurred a little bit, but yeah, no, I've noticed, you know, every, everywhere I've ever been that, you know, they do that head fake or put their head down and wait for you to move kind of scenario. And you know, you could actually see that they're not actually feeding. <laughs> they just yeah. got their head down, look like they are feeding, but they're really not. Um, yeah, yeah. It, I, that's a that's a real common thing. There's actually, if if you guys want to listen to or not listen to, but read one of my early mentors uh, was a gentleman by the name of Peter Fiducia. He wrote a book called Whitetail Strategies, and in his book, he's got a he's got. As a matter of fact, I just pulled it out to see what chapter ten. In his book is called Body Language of Deer. This is a great section, a great section to read because it kind of goes over like all those little things that you see, like you know, a deer holding one ear forward, one ear back, uh, the t- the tail flick, like uh, Mariah described. You know, those things. It's very, very informative, and it's you know a quick, you know, eight pages or whatever, and you just. It'll give you really good insight. And I know for me, a guy who's not super patient, it's helped me kind of wrangle myself down, back down to making shots when I'm, especially when I'm in, you know, the kill zone or whatever. So um, anyway, moving forward, I wanted to ask you if you had any like really cool hunting stories, something maybe that you learned something about hunting deer that maybe changed the way that you hunt today. Yeah. Like an aha moment or something. I think one really big one for me kind of stemmed from my, my master's research where I was monitoring deer response to red Oak acorns and essentially when the peak in deer activity was. So these acorns were, were being put out in November and the deer really started hammering them in, in January that was down in Mississippi. In Indiana, a uh, season or so after that, we had a really good northern red oak acorn crop. And 
come December, I found a, an Oak Ridge where there was a ton of feeding sun, very fresh feeding sun. And I hunted a little bit and there was deer all over it. And I eventually killed my buck for the season right there, eating red oak acorns in December. Mm-hmm. Most of, you know, what I've always was told growing up about acorns is focus on white oaks. The deer like them more because they taste better, which, you know, that's, that's BS. I, we can talk about that for different reasons in a, in a different episode. Deer might select some, some white oaks over red oaks in some circumstances, but I've, I've seen them absolutely eat small red oak acorns over big white oak acorns side by side, walk right past the white oak acorns. In this instance, the aha moment for me was really just confirming what my master's research had shown me. And that is that deer will eat acorns very heavily. I mean, it will be a concentrated, very distinct food source where the deer are being sucked into, which was the case in this ridge in Indiana. That can happen well after the acorns have dropped. And especially with red oaks, because they stay on the ground all through winter, they don't germinate right away like white oak acorns. So they're, they're a food source that's available much longer. And so the way I've applied that in the future is that, um, for instance, I'm going to go hunt a WMA this weekend that I've never been to before. And so kind of going in fresh, you know, it's exciting. What am I going to look for, you know? One of the things I, I do want to see is if there were any species of red oaks on that site that did produce acorns this year. And if so, I'll start finding areas, you know, if they're bottomland oaks, I'll look in the bottomlands. If they're uplands, I'll, I'll seek the uplands and try to find that, you know, a, an oak flat where the deer are hammering those acorns late season. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, this time of year where, where I'm going this weekend, two weeks, three weeks past the peak of the rut, there's still some rutting behavior, but deer are starting to shift to those food patterns really heavily. And if you can get on a good food source, it can be dynamite. And I've seen it work in the month after the peak of the rut really well, where if you get on the food, it can be kind of a constant stream of bucks over the days coming, Mm -hmm. checking out those does there, eating the food, everything they want at that point is right where you're sitting Mm -hmm. and that would apply to you know if you had private ground and ag fields or food plots you know in this case the reason i really keyed in on acorns red oak acorns specifically in late season is that when all the stars align and this you can't do this every year because the acorns aren't necessarily available but when all the stars align it is like you have a, a you know standing beams in front of you when you find the spot it's the spot and I don't run into other guys doing that, which makes it nice. I, I don't usually have to worry about people walking in on those spots and, you know, and, and hunting that those deer the same way. And when I find a spot like that, I'll, I'll just set up. And again, over the days, just wait until a buck that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm excited about comes through. Cool. Yep. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Those late season hunts, I, it's been a while because like I said, December, January, usually hunting here and, you know, it's full blown rut. So I'm, and I'm typically spotting and stalking. It's a little, you know, different, uh, situation unless I go up to, you know, where the trees are at, get in the timber, ponderosa pines, gamble oaks and stuff like that. Then I, you know, if I was going to like tree stand haunt or something, then I would, I would kind of look at a lot of these different things, but when I used to go, uh, I would go to like Illinois 
uh, what was that in January, beginning of January? I can't remember exactly, but it was late. It was late, uh, either beginning part of the next year or the following year or, or very late in the season. After the rut, you would see those bucks very – the does would be heavily into the feed. You know, they would be in the ag fields, winter wheats, all these, you know, late season crops. And the bucks would come in and out all the time. And, and, and I and I equated it to the same thing you said. It was like they're there because those are there. So in case there's a doe that's coming into estrus late. And two, because they need the feed, you know, they need to put back on the weight to get through the winter. It's, it's a really mm-hmm. – you know, just keying into all those things is like really key. To, it's a real, uh, it's positive for you to, to pay attention to the all the things that are going to put the chances of, of of putting a buck down. Like you, you, looking at all the different aspects, like what what does a deer need for that time of year, or what is a deer looking for that time of year, and getting all those attributes and and kind of putting them all in your favor. Yeah. Uh, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah, I love late season for that. It's my favorite time of year to hunt. I think it's way underrated. It's uh deer are so patternable in late season. You just got to put in the work to find the food and then wait it out. And yeah. you know, the rut is a, is a game of luck in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And you can sit about anywhere and you might have a deer walk by you, but you know, with late season, it can be a little bit more of a system. I feel like. I think it's the most obvious too. Like, yes, in early season there's obvious, but there's food everywhere in early season. Yes, you know there yep. there's browse, there's you know all kinds of stuff that they don't necessarily need to come to, but it concentrates them. Right. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. Well, awesome, man. I want to appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you do and follow along? Um, with you? I got a Instagram page, just my first name, Mariah underscore biologist. So that's M O R I A H. And, uh, you know, I post hunts and whatever I'm feeling like on there. That's about it. That's about the only place. <laughs> All right. That's good, man. I, w- I wish I was a lot more disconnected to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to do a lot more stuff. I was more connected, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, Man, the last couple of years not has been so much more fun. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you go back uh, to doing it for yourself and instead of for the gram. Yeah, I yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. If I post anything, it's just because I'm super fired up about whatever it is. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming. Helps us keep this free. Do me a favor. Go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%, all one word. And check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much. And we'll catch you on the next show.